In the beginning of the series, we've been looking at kingdom warfare, uh, and especially over the last couple of weeks. And we've been looking at some pretty big stuff, actually. We've been looking at these royal battles. We've been looking at cosmic proportions of battles and forceful advances of the kingdom of God, clashes with the kingdom of darkness. It's been very boyish, I've been told. So uh, it's, been, it's been good fun. And, as, and uh, I know that for many of us, the Christmas story will never be quite the same after looking at the kingdom warfare version of the Christmas story. Uh, Santa was most definitely not happy. So, uh, but the main message is that kingdom advance involves warfare and it's a provocation to the darkness in the world and it will be resisted, but the kingdom of God advances anyway. It's unstoppable, the kingdom of God. But for most of us, these sort of big cosmic questions don't often come up in our daily lives. Somebody said in one of our small groups this week, uh, last week, that for me the battle is actually more about getting through the day as a Christian, making good choices and maintaining a walk with God. That's warfare. Just getting out of bed and deciding to be a Christian today and to live in a godly way. And so the battle is not so much about the big stuff, but what goes on inside of me. It comes down to us. It comes home to us in the end. And Paul called it a warring in my flesh. The battle against sin, doubt, unbelief. And so kingdom warfare starts with me. And uh, if you're anything like me, you'll know that I am probably my own biggest enemy most of the time in these things. My responses, my attitudes, my sinful behaviour is often the biggest enemy. But make no mistake, because even this is still very strategic, because as long as we are continually distracted with the battle going on inside of us, we're of little of no threat to the kingdom of darkness. And so this is how our daily lives kind of connects with that bigger battle, that clashing of kingdoms that we've been talking about. So today and next time, we're going to be looking at temptation from Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is tempted by the devil. And I want to do this over two weeks. This week, how does temptation work? I mean, how is it that time after time we get caught out with temptation? How does it keep working on me? Why haven't we got wise to it yet? And uh, what's going on there? So, and I'm going to make you think a bit today. I hope that's okay. So that's why I've given you the sheets so you can make some notes as we go along, some stuff to think about and to take away. And then next time, I want to look at some strategies for handling or overcoming temptation. We'll touch on that today, but we'll look at it in more detail next time. So let's just turn to Matthew chapter 4, first of all, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. And this, uh, if you know the context, is on the back of an amazing heavenly encounter that Jesus has just had. Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan. And it says that as Jesus was baptized, the heavens were opened and the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. The Holy Spirit has just anointed Jesus for his earthly ministry and then immediately he's led into the desert for his first big showdown with the prince of this world. And this happens because Jesus is beginning to advance the kingdom of God. So let's just read the passage, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him and said, It's written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you'd give us fresh understanding on this whole encounter Lord, I pray that this would be life-changing to hear about the roots of temptation. I pray, Father, that you would just come upon us by the Holy Spirit with a spirit of revelation and bring clarity to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure that uh, many of you, if you've been around church any period of time, will have heard talks on temptation from this passage Uh, But I want to stay really big picture today, and I want to look at how does temptation work, how does it catch us out, and expose the roots of temptation. So that's what today's talk is about. And the first thing I want you to see is that temptation is tailored to each of us. We have our own particular kinds of temptation to contend with. You know, your temptations are not the same as mine, and vice versa. They're tailored to you, which is partly why they're so powerful. And it's why Jesus gets us to pray, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer. That's not because God tempts us. He allows temptation. But it's more to do with, Lord, keep me from the particular kinds of temptation that I am vulnerable to. Keep me from those. For do you know where you're vulnerable? Do you know the temptations that you're vulnerable in. Well, that prayer is about that. Keep me from that particular area of temptation. It's how we guard ourselves. So my temptations are not the same as yours and vice versa, and neither are the temptations of Jesus the same as ours. It's unlikely that any of us will be offered all the kingdoms of the world at any time soon. It's not likely that we'll be offered uh, to turn stones into bread as a kind of a magic trick in the desert. And neither are we going to be tempted to do spectacular stunts like throw ourselves off high buildings so that the angels can play catch with us. We're not likely to have those kind of temptations. They were very particular to Jesus. Jesus' temptations were specific to him. So that his tempting, or more accurately, the testing he endured, was specifically tailored to who he was. They were designed not to, know, not to test him on what he knew, although he does seem to know his Bible pretty well, as you can see from how many times he quotes scripture, but rather they were to reveal who Jesus was. These were messianic tests designed to prove that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. They were very specific to Jesus. And yet, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. Hebrews chapter 4 says that. And for this reason, the verse goes on, we can have confidence to approach God for help 
when we're in need, when we're tempted. So I found myself asking, looking at these temptations of Jesus, well, was he really tempted as we are? I mean, how can it be so if his temptations are not the same as mine? In what way was he tempted as we are? It seems like a crucial question to me. If I'm going to go to him for help, I need to know he understands the temptations I'm facing. Well, there's some other passages which show that Jesus was tempted. We could choose Matthew chapter 16, where Peter tempts him. If you remember, he tempts him to avoid the cross. He says, far be it from you, Lord, you don't need to go that way. And Jesus turns around and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Well, there's the time in the Garden of Gethsemane where it seems that Jesus almost toys with the idea of not going through with the cross and saying, Lord, are you sure there's no other way? Or there's the other occasion when Jesus is actually on the cross now, he's nailed there, and I think it's seven times people say to him, look, if you're the Christ, get down from the cross, we'll believe in you. Temptation. I can't quite identify with those temptations, can you? So in what way are his temptations mine and mine his? How does he understand what it is to be tempted? I mean, when was Jesus tempted with the latest iPhone? The iPhone 6 looks great, doesn't it? I mean, when was he tempted with that? When, when did the billboard on the street turn Jesus' hat? When did he fight with his wife? I mean, he wasn't even married. When did he get tempted to look at internet porn? Or when did Cadbury's chocolate tempt him? (laughs) You see, Jesus didn't have these kind of opportunities to sin because they didn't exist for him, just as we will not experience the temptations he experienced. They don't exist for us. They are tailored temptations. But if this is so, then how can we have confidence he can help us in our time of need? And I think this is a really important question And so for this, we need to understand the nature of temptation and where it comes from. So firstly, then, what is temptation? Well, it's not sin. That's what we need to say. Temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted and it says that he never sinned. We are tempted. Being tempted itself is not sin. Even if we feel strongly tempted. Now sometimes we can feel guilt from association with a particular temptation. And it's like, it, it turns the screw on us, and oh, you shouldn't be tempted with that kind of stuff. And you kind of feel guilty, and you've not actually done anything. We feel guilty from association. And neither is God angry with us for getting tempted. You know, God never tempts us with evil, but he does allow us to be tested. Also, just in case you're wondering, there is no level of higher spiritual maturity when when temptation is no longer a problem. You don't get to a certain point in your Christian life and say, ah, bring it on. I can take any temptation. You know, Jesus was tempted. (laughs) I rest my case. He was the most mature man that ever lived, and he was tempted. So what is it? How does it work? Why does it work? To understand this, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden, and this is where you're going to need your sheets. Go back to the Garden of Eden and see how God created us, because as we will see, temptation works because it presses the button 
on our basic human needs and then distorts them. Then distorts them. And I'm going to call these our Genesis needs. And if we turn back to Genesis, I'm just going to read verses to you rather than get you to turn to all the passages. But if we look into Genesis, we see that at the beginning of time in creation, that these needs, these Genesis needs fall into four basic areas. So if you're into this kind of stuff, you might be aware of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Well, it's kind of like that, but this comes straight out of the Bible. And the first thing is this, that our need for safety and certainty... Our need for safety and certainty. Every human being needs that in their lives. Genesis 2, verse 8 to 10 says this. The Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, the, uh, the, middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters. And you can see from here that there was a very specific place that God placed the man. He put him in this garden. It, It was a place of safety and security. There were clear boundaries. There was water. There was plentiful food. Man knew what he was about. He knew what he was there to do, to work the garden and take care of it. There was this need of safety and security and it was provided for him, given to him by God on the plate, right at the beginning of time. You know, this need for safety and security is very strong in our culture, isn't it? Anybody ever got caught out with health and safety? I mean, it's just out there so much. It's just like an obsession in our culture. I heard recently on Radio 4, so it must be true, I heard that they are just about to introduce, you know when you go on the London Underground, it says, mind the gap before you step off the train. They're just about to do that for buses. Mind the gap, for goodness sake. Just in case somebody doesn't know that when you step off a bus, there's a gap. Almost an obsession in our particular culture. But this is how we were created, with this need for stability and protection. If you ever lose your job or something tragic happens, you'll know how you feel like your world is falling apart. You've not got that safety and that security. It's even where our basic survival instincts come from. It's where self-preservation comes from. It's a good thing. It's what God created us to be. People who need safety and security. The The second Genesis need is for variety and adventure. Variety and adventure. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 to 30, it says that God blessed them. Isn't it good when God blesses us? That's how it started with God's blessing. He blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. And he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruits and seed in it. They will be yours for food. Adventure. Fill the earth. Explore it. Get to know all the animals that I've put there, all the discoveries that we're still trying to work out. We still don't understand the greatness of creation and what God put in there. 
incredible variety and adventure. Every seed-bearing plant, every tree, I've given it to you. They're they're yours for food. A mixed diet. (laughs) If you've got any doubt about this, then consider our drive for new things. Why is it we always want the latest thing, the new thing? The new phone, the new car, the new experience. We need variety. We want variety. It drives even our economy. That need for variety. I want to change. I'm just fed up with this phone. I've had it for a year now. (laughs) I mean, advertising relies on this need, doesn't it? You haven't got the latest phone. You know, I haven't got a thing about the iPhone 6. I just want you to know. I'm happy with my iPhone 5. It's just a good illustration. (laughs) You know, our love of speed or travel or theme parks, rides that scare us, crazy people who hang off cliffs and jump out of planes. It's adventure. We've got it in us. It's how God created us. It's what drives us to explore and to discover It's a good thing. It's part of what makes life enjoyable. It's how God created us to be. And the third Genesis need is that for significance and purpose. So in Genesis 2, 19 to 20, it says that God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them all to man to see what he would call them. What name are you going to give them? And whatever man called each living creature, that was his name. So man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. So along with working the garden, Adam had this incredibly responsible task. I want you to give names to all of the animals. Can you imagine what that must have been like? The awesome responsibility, the significance I get to name all the animals because what you name in their thinking and in their culture is what you are responsible for. You have authority over that which you name. Naming gives power over what has been named and it's part of Adam's delegated authority from God to rule over the earth and sea. And this need for significance and purpose drives us to greatness and to achievement. Self-esteem comes from there. This need for significance, to hold my head up. It gives us value and and means that we have something worthwhile to contribute. It's why I want to do a good job. It's why I want people to think well of me. It's not a bad thing either. And it's often, but not exclusively, more of a male trait, as wives will know, Your husbands need to feel that you are the best thing, they are the best thing in the world to you and you admire them. Even if the job they've done isn't quite up to your standard, ladies, speaking from the heart here. They just need to feel that significance, particularly male, not not always. Whereas the next one, number four, is again not exclusively but often female, more of a female thing. It's belonging and connection, this need for belonging. And connection. Genesis 2, 18 and 22. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. You can't get much closer than that, can you? Out of my rib. (laughs) My wife is out of my rib. 
That's pretty close. We were created to belong and to be connected to one another. And it's the glue that helps human society to work. Fractured though it is in so many parts, it is still something that we strive for. And all of these Genesis needs are in themselves good things. I mean, when God created the heavens and the earth and he rested, he, he looked around and he said, it's good. God, in his standards of holiness and greatness, looked at creation and said, it's good. I've done a good job. So they were good things. Actually, they're all part of what it makes us uh, to be human. And any one or all of these needs are good in themselves, but they can also be distorted and become sinful when we seek fulfillment of any of these needs illegitimately. And this happened, first of all, to Eve, where there was a distortion of those needs, the Genesis needs. And Genesis 3 has the, has the, the relevant information, and I'm going to run quickly through that. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. And I want you, as I'm going through, see if you can spot which buttons of her Genesis needs the snake is pushing. Here we go, verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What do you think that's about? Variety and adventure. Any tree? Did he really say that? Isn't that a bit boring? What about your variety and adventure? Secondly, the woman said to the snake, we may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God didn't say, did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Well, maybe there's some adventure there. You know, the idea, if I touch it, I might die. (laughs) Some people are kind of weird like that. You know, if I jump out of a plane without a parachute, I might die, but hey, it's fun. (laughs) I can't say I'm particularly like that. And there's also a conflict there with safety. The safety thing. Well, I might die if I do that. I want adventure, but I might die. Safety and, and adventure. Verse 4 says, You will certainly not die, said the snake, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. How about that? Significance? Certainty? You'll certainly not die? And safety? The devil's reassuring me. Isn't that reassuring? Not really. (laughs) And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good... And pleasing to the eye, she ate it and gave some to her husband's. But do you see how the snake just presses Eve's buttons and he does the same to any of us? He presses those buttons. Any of these basic human needs can be distorted through temptation, moving us away from legitimate ways of satisfying these needs to progressively more distorted ways. So back to the original question then, and I want some audience participation. I had a bit of practice on that one. Back to the original question. Was Jesus really tempted as we are tempted? Turn back to Matthew 4, and let's review the temptations that he experienced and ask ourselves, which of the four areas of human need was he being tempted on? So the first one is the temptation to turn stones into bread. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. What do you think? 
Safety. Yep, why safety? Very good. You need to eat to stay alive. You can tell she's medical, can't you? Anybody else? Significance, why? Absolutely, yeah. Make you prove that you're somebody. Turn these stones into bed. Significance. Significance, variety as well. You know, he may have been getting a bit bored of stones. Maybe some bread would be nice. He was hungry, after all. So the second temptation is this. Um, See if you can get this one. The temptation is throw yourself down from here. Adventure. Adventure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps a bit of a problem with safety there. (laughs) Safety and adventure. Perhaps even significance again, you think? What about the third temptation? All the kingdoms of the world will be given to you if you worship me. Belonging, yes, that's good. Why is it belonging? Who said that? Belong to him? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, maybe. But yes, definitely belonging because also worship... Worship is to do with a very close... There's nothing closer than worship. There's no closer connection. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you these things. What else have we got? Significance. Why? All the kingdoms of the world. Yeah. It's also about significance, but also purpose. You see, Satan was trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross, to avoid suffering and death, to gain the world by striking a deal doing a deal with the devil. So was Jesus tempted like us? Yes, he was. The same Genesis needs were challenged in Jesus as they are in us. And I'm so glad, you know, that Jesus was fully man as well as fully God, because if he wasn't, he couldn't have been fully tempted as we are. But it also uh, helps us because it's able to show us how to overcome. We're going to look at this in more detail next time, but just go back through the temptations briefly again and feel free to shout out if you want to. But how did Jesus pass the test? How did he counteract the Genesis needs? We've seen that temptation works because it presses the button of human needs that God created us with, uh, with and so that helps us to develop some strategies for overcoming temptation. So we can direct our minds and our hearts towards legitimate ways of satisfying the needs that God created us with. So this is how Jesus defeated the enemy, quoting from Deuteronomy 6 to 8, which suggests that he was mirroring the desert experiences of Israel and the temptations they face going through the desert, which is another study altogether. But on each occasion, Jesus deliberately counteracts illegitimate satisfaction of his basic human needs with legitimate ones. Are you following me? Sorry, I told you I was going to make you think today. The first one is stones to bread. How did Jesus counteract that? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the the mouth of God. Jesus was saying, my survival isn't based on food, safety and security. He says, I trust the Father to provide for me, even as he provided manna for Israel in the desert. He called me to this fast, and he will call me out of it. And this temptation is all about short-circuiting the purposes of God. Now, we all go through difficult times, and trusting God through them is a huge challenge, isn't it? When we go through difficult times, that actually finds out what our faith is made of. 
Do we really trust God? Enduring trials, holding on to God, not giving up. I mean, how often do you just feel like giving up? It's just, I'm so tired of this battle. Not giving up. Standing firm in the face of difficulties. I mean, how many times I know I have in my own impatience tried to make things happen before their time. Or try to avoid a confrontation that needs to happen. I want to make life easier for myself. Am I the only one here? <laughs> and this is where we turn our own stones into bread, where we try to jump out too soon. How often do we pray, Lord, get me out of this time, instead of, Lord, get me through this time? Get me through this time well. Help me to endure to the end. Help me to grow in character and stability and faith. The second temptation, throw yourself down from here. Well, Jesus answered this. He says, it's written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So this was a safety and adventure test. And Jesus was saying, look, trusting God is not about performing stunts, but fearlessly obeying him. That's what pleases him. That's what it means to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I just want to say, there is no greater adventure than living by the words that come from God's mouth. When I fearlessly start to obey him. You know, some of us went out on the streets last week, and I was so uh, amazed by Chris, who I went with, we partnered together. He just went straight into the middle of this group of young people. And he said, we're here on the streets praying for people to be healed. Anybody want healing? And all these sort of frightening-looking young people all turned and said, yes, I do, I do, I do, I do. And we prayed for people and we saw them healed there and then on the street. He was just following what God was saying to him. There's a guy there who'd broken his foot skating. And his foot, all the pain just left his foot as we were praying for him. I was going, this is amazing. Now, what greater adventure would there be than that? I thought that was cool. (laughs) But you see, Jesus did everything that he saw the Father doing. I think that's exciting. That's an exciting way to live. He opened the blind eyes, he walked on water, he calmed a storm, cast out demons, he raised the dead. We don't need to put God to the test to see amazing things. We actually just need to obey him and step out in faith. Thirdly, third temptation, all the kingdoms of the world, if you worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. It's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was saying, there's no way that I want significance and purpose through any other means than connection with the Father. Get away from me. I mean, to worship God from that place of understanding our identity as sons is the only place that we can truly find significance. We can gain significance from all kinds of different places, mostly mostly in significance, we look for it in things that we do, don't we? How often do we do? I've done a really good job, so I feel significant. But actually what Jesus teaches us is that your significance is in who you are as a son of God. You are already significant. If you're a Christian today, if you are a child of God, you are already significant. And every temptation, if you notice, was shaped around Jesus' identity. If you're the son of God, it was the same for us. 
mostly we are tempted to believe wrong things about who we are and then this affects what we do. And Jesus knew who he was and was able to defeat the enemy in that identity, in that identity as the Son of God. A lot of stuff there. Let me just conclude for you. We all face temptations specifically tailored to us. No one person's temptation is the same as another, and that's why it's so powerful. It is designed to trap you, sorry. But it also relates to the way that God has created us, because we all have these basic Genesis needs. We need safety and certainty. We need variety and adventure. We need significance and purpose. We need to belong and connect. But these needs can only be met in the context they were originally designed to work, in relationship with God. And this is where the battle is felt. Externally, temptation tries to distort these needs and looks for ways to draw us into satisfying through illegitimate ways, leading to sin. Internally, we battle too against sinful desires, and we don't always give way to the leading of the Spirit. This is the warring in my flesh that Paul talked about. So we're having a battle on the outside and on the inside on these things. So how does understanding temptation and how it works help us to overcome and keep us from being distracted from our position in the battle of advancing the kingdom of God? Well, here's the take-home, especially for Becky Webb, who's a teacher, and she likes it when I give you a take-home. So here's the take-home. Three take-homes. Number one, think about the temptations that you struggle with. The ones that are specifically tailored to you that you know about better than anybody else. Think about those temptations and ask yourself this question. What am I looking for in that temptation? What is the need that I am trying to satisfy through that temptation? What is legitimate, a legitimate way of satisfying it? And what is illegitimate? Because those needs ultimately can only be met in God out of right relationship with him. And once you've seen that, repent of looking for, change your mind, look at it differently. Say, Lord, I shouldn't be looking for satisfaction of that need in that place. It should be in the context of my marriage. (laughs) It should be in the context of uh, godly relationships. It should be in these places that are legitimate that you've arranged for us. And repent. And secondly, this is one that you're going to have to get your head around a bit. The second thing is, give away what you need. So if it's significance that you need, give away significance. Let me just explain. It's a kingdom principle. It says in the Bible, give and it will be given to you. So if you're looking at your temptations, I'm saying, I need more significance. Well, give it to those that are around you. Encourage others. Make them feel significant. Make them feel like a million dollars. It's amazing how it works, how it comes back. And I don't just mean people say, oh, I think you're great too. It's not that, it's creating the environment, the the culture around you, the atmosphere around you, where actually I'm a positive influence on people. And I make them grow, I make them big in themselves, in God. Or if it's belonging and connection, well that's an easy one, just show love to people. Just love one another. That's how we connect. 
Be warm and affectionate because when you are, that's the culture that you create, that's the atmosphere, and people are drawn to you. Or variety and adventure. Well, why not do something variety and adventurous? Do something crazy. Go on a trip somewhere. Go on a mission trip. Go out on the streets and tell people about Jesus. You get the idea. So, so that's one, two, three. One is think about temptations. Two, give away what you need. Three, tell somebody about your struggles. Tell somebody about them. Ask for help. You know, Jesus, it says, was tempted in every way as we are, yet didn't sin, so that we can have confidence to approach him for help. We can approach Jesus for help. We can, get, we can ask one another for help. We can pray for one another to help and support one another through temptation. Three take-homes. Lord Jesus, we want to just thank you for the way that you created us. We want to thank you, Lord, that you created us with needs. So that would always lead us back to you in the end. Right back to the garden, right back to that original relationship. And Father God, I I just pray that for each one of us, that truth would set some people free today. Just the realities of, ah, that's why. The aha moment. And I pray, Lord, that there would be restored relationship across this room with you. Perhaps for those that have been out on a limb or just struggling in different areas. I just pray, Lord, for that reconnecting. Thank you, Lord, that you never condemn us. Thank you, Lord, that you draw us. Lord, we worship you. Lord, would you just send your Holy Spirit upon us now? Would you fill us up? Would you encourage us? And help us to walk more closely with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.